This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to another episode of PreserveCast, The Professor and the Practitioner. We took off a month as uh, the school year and the the traditional work year began in earnest in September, and we're back here in October um, talking uh, with Dr. Whitney Martinko of Villanova, and we're going to be talking all about um, all the things that make us tick and what's going on in the world of preservation. And when we left you last time, we were headed out on vacation, and now we're coming back to talk about our vacations and where we went in the strange historic places that we visited. Um, so, Whitney, remind people you were headed up to upstate New York. That's and right. And what did what did you what did you see and where'd you go? Yeah, well, we ended up taking about a week and drove from Philly up the Hudson River west of the Finger Lakes and back down through Central PA. So that was the itinerary. Did a lot of driving, but I have to say, maybe my favorite stop was the first stop, which was Albany, New York. I had never been. Um, and there's just a lot of great architecture up there. And you were heading to New England, if I remember correctly. We were. We were going up to Rockport, Massachusetts, and we spent um, some time in Rockport. We ended up getting a little, you know, one of these Airbnbs and come to find out that it was an old artist cottage that had been repurposed um, into an Airbnb, which was was neat. Um, And they actually had art of the artist... um, who was a classically trained artist, um, who, and some of his art inside, um, the little one room B and B, um, or Airbnb. And, um, yeah, I mean, the North shore of, um, Massachusetts is just stunning and it's, you know, the, the architecture is just all just amazing. Um, and we spent some time in, I think it was Ipswich, um, Massachusetts, just walking around and seeing these like glorious salt boxes that go back to, you know, the early 1700s, um, you know, and you, and you know, you're in an old place where then you see a house that was built in like 1880 and you're like, Oh, look how new it is. Look at that one. Only 1880. Right. Totally distinct <laughs> from, from where we live for the most part. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it was, um, it was fun. And I was, I was sharing with you before we, um, before we hit record, I also just took a recent trip up to Pennsylvania, up your way, and spent some time at the Ephrata Cloister. And we have to get them uh, on PreserveCast in the future, one of these really unique and interesting early religious history sites of Pennsylvania um, and these buildings that date back to the 1740s. So I was I was all about cloisters and early religious, uh, sex or cults, whichever way you want to, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. Um, but you know, Pennsylvania is just littered with amazing historic resources. It's, it's, it's fun to get yeah, out. As and- I know, right. It's a great place to, to live and work. Yeah. The, one of the preservation projects that I saw on my trip that was most memorable was, a former house from around that same era, actually, I believe it was a house originally built in 1728 in, in Albany. And it's distinctive because I'd never seen a, um, a project that looked quite like this. There is a multi-stage campaign to raise money and to rebuild this house. Of course it was, you know, refashioned as a 19th century 
shop. And in the 20th century, I believe it was sort of more industrial use too. But there's this campaign to not so much restore the house as stabilize it and make it what Historic Albany calls like a study house, right? So they are, I think, looking to stabilize and make visible a lot of the 18th century or early 18th century um, fabric that is still in place. But at the moment, they have a wrapper on the building. So, you know, the sides and the roof are just, um, I don't know, maybe corrugated something, but the front is a printed rendering of what the original house would have looked like. It's beautiful. It's done in colored. It's, it's pretty high detail, but it's really nice because it gives a sense of place for what I would imagine is, you know, not entirely cost prohibitive, right? I'm sure it's not cheap to create a wrapper uh, that looks like the facade, but um, I had never seen something that had sought to sort of project an image of the real, original building onto something in quite that way. So maybe you've That's seen more of that than I have, but it was really, it was compelling. And based on the dates of the wrapper and sort of the information plaque out there. It looks like maybe their project has not gone as quickly as they had originally planned, which is a common, uh, a common feature of many projects, I would say. But it seems like a great way to protect, but also to sort of educate and to give it sort of visually new life on the street. Yeah, we'll have to tag uh, Historic Albany in, in this episode so that they can uh, hear that they're getting a shout out. <clears throat> I've only ever seen that once before. Um, in grand scale. And it was when they were um, rehabilitating the exterior of the Supreme Court building um, in Washington, D.C. And they did what I think, I think they call these scrims and somebody yes, listening who, yeah. who knows that <laughs> will we'll, we'll either correct us or say, yes, we were right. Um, and, um, but they did a printed scrim of exactly what the building looked like. So it was almost like if you were far enough away, it still looked like it was the Supreme Court building, even though behind yeah. there was scaffolding and all this work going on. So, yeah, that's a super cool idea. And I think it kind of lends credence to, you know, taking care of place and caring about the places that you work in and even using opportunities during construction to not make it look, you know, terrible. Um, right. So... That is That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I have cool. seen in Scrim. I think you're right with that word. I've seen Scrims to cover construction. I think I've actually seen some of those maybe in historic buildings in Philadelphia as well. Maybe what was distinctive was that the building looks absolutely nothing like this at this point, right? That it was it was really sort of just like a a, a box. And if we had unwrapped that box, it looked totally different. But yeah, you're yeah. right. That the construction, that's a, a great way of um a great connection. Yeah. And we're, we're plant at preservation, Maryland. We're doing a resiliency climate resiliency project in Annapolis on city dock and, um, which is down at the water's edge and we're elevating a structure uh, about nine feet in the air actually. And the rest of city dock eventually will be elevated to meet it. Um, but we even built into the funding for the project, um, money for interpretation and signage so that we can wrap the, construction fencing with mm -hmm. interpretation, not only about the history of the site, but also about climate resiliency and what's going on in the demonstration project so that the, the hundreds of thousands of visitors who come to Annapolis will have something to see other than, you know, hard hats required, um, yeah. which is oftentimes what you see. So yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. It's a, it's always, there's always an opportunity to educate um, if you're purposeful about it. So, and obviously it, it, it worked because you're talking about it now and you right. probably wouldn't have been talking about it if it was just a construction fence. 
No, I definitely wouldn't have. And, and not even honestly, if it were like an app or something, right. Or one of those programs where you like project a historic photo onto the landscape. I mean, those are great and everything, right. But there's something to be said for just engaging as you walk by on the street right in yeah. front of you. So you, you had an interesting idea about, um, a topic of discussion that I think would resonate yeah. with a lot of listeners. Yeah. Well, you know, we, as you mentioned, we went away on actual vacation and then we took a vacation from our podcasts. But as I was thinking about what we wanted to talk about, it struck me that we've never really talked in great detail about our jobs and how we come to preservation. And I think one of the things that's so great about this conversation is that you know, surprisingly, a lot of executive directors and professors don't end up spending a lot of time talking about their jobs unless there happens to be, you know, you happen to be friends with somebody, right? And then you're probably not hopefully talking about your job all the time. So I wondered if we might think in this and talk in this um, podcast episode about, you know, what we see as a daily day in the life, right? Because I I think, you know, I can envision what I think your days are like, and maybe you have ideas about what my days are like, but we don't really know, right? And I would bet a lot of people who come to preservation from a lot of different professions might um, not really know what the other people do all day, right? That they're working with. So tell mm-hmm. me, what is a typical day in the life of an executive director of a preservation organization? So, and I feel like everybody starts um, this conversation now with, well, pre-COVID. Right. Um, you know, pre-COVID, I used to go into an office um, and uh, we have an office in the city of Baltimore in an old restored um, uh, mill building. And... Um, Inside this historic building, we have a pretty modern looking, um, it almost looks like a tech startup office, um, but this sort of cool um, modern designed office built in and sort of melding into the fabric of the historic building. I'm Um, already jealous. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a very, very cool building, very, you know, huge ceilings and um, skylights and all that kind of stuff. Um, But obviously, because of COVID, we haven't been there for a while. Um, And so whether I was there or whether I'm here at home, which is where I've been for for some time, like a lot of listeners, um, it's it's for me, it's a ton. Now it's a ton of meetings. It's a ton of virtual meetings. I was I was telling you we're recording this at um, I guess we started recording at two o'clock in the afternoon and I had had back to back video meetings from 9 a.m. until 1.30. So I I scrambled for lunch between 1.30 and 2 and, and then moved. And they're, they're all over the place. You know, they're they're with there was a give you kind of a a litany of them. There was a call with a construction crew and an architect about one of our rehab projects um, and going over punch list items. There was, that's our property redevelopment program and sort of overseeing that and the staff person who oversees that, but being there for them to help make decisions if necessary and think through stuff. Um, Then there was a catch up call with our trades uh, professional who's running our historic trades program and all the latest questions that we have to answer and things that we need to figure out and what we're doing with this and how we're going to address this and that sort of thing. Um, coming up with budgets for different programs and stuff like that. And then, you know, asking them to work on a variety of different things. Um, 
Then there was a meeting about uh, Maryland's 250th anniversary um, of America Commission and where that's headed and our role in that and my appointment to that commission. Then it was a meeting with our website team for the redevelopment of our website. Uh, I've been here long enough now to have been through one web rehab and now we're doing another one. That's, that's, you can kind of mark your time as an executive director of how many websites you've How many websites through. you've had to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then it was a content, it was a call with a grassroots local advocate about an issue that was happening in their community. Um, and then it was scrambling for lunch and then it was preserve cast. And so that's kind of, you know, we have a big enough staff and so we're different than some organizations, you know, we're going on 16 staff members now that I have enough where it's me jumping in with them a lot to help them work through wherever the friction point is and helping them kind of make decisions and giving them the resources that they need and connecting them, um, and sort of empowering them to kind of keep moving so that they're not caught waiting for a decision on my part. Um, so I am fortunate that I have enough staff working on a lot of these projects, but I still have to jump in to kind of see where we are, where we're headed. Um, you know, a lot of calls with legislators, a lot of calls, um, to try and figure out how to fundraise and all those pieces. So it's a lot of, for me, it tends to be a lot of meetings, a lot of, um, mm -hmm engaging with people about issues and trying to kind of move the work of the organization ahead, thinking about this sort of strategic vision of where we want to be. Mm -hmm. And then every day trying to knock off the, the, the tactical things that we have to do in order to get there. So, um, right. That big, the big list, right. The like five year plan or even the one year plan and then the daily. Yeah. Yeah. And the then for me, you know, I always, I mean, I think, uh, you know, an executive director that's going to succeed is one that is laser focused on the finances. So for me, and I have standing meetings with a number of different team members every week, and then a monthly budget meeting where we go over where we're at, you know, budget versus actual, how that's working. Um, you know, and I'm laser focused on making sure we have enough money. Um, I did a, an episode a couple weeks ago with, um, Merrill Hoopengardner, the head of the National Trust Community Investment Corporation. And I said that, um, you know, I was sort of joking with her that preservation without money is just good intentions. Right. And, um, that's basically nonprofit work, right? Like if you don't get into nonprofits ideally because you're really love money or you're really want to do things with money or you're really good with money. But in reality, um, nonprofits, just how we file our taxes, we, we are a business. And, right. um, so that's always the number one stress point of how are we going to make the budget? Are we making the budget? Um, do we have enough resources to grow and to provide staff the money that they need, you know, to compensate them adequately? Um, those are, those are, those are the, those are the big worries that keep you the up. Big worries. And would you say that that is maybe the most unexpected of what you thought you would be doing when you started heading in this direction? Did you know that finances were as big a part of it? Did you envision the sort of diversity of people you would meet, but also the like hmm. always being in a meeting, right? And I, I sort of hear this a lot from people who are working in preservation or history in some way. Yeah, so what I was think, the most unexpected thing that you ended up doing. Well, it's either unexpected or we were saying before, like what you were perhaps what you were least prepared for. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I think 
you know, in a leadership role in a nonprofit, you're going to be dealing with money. So it's not unexpected, but certainly none of the classes that I took, you know, prepared me for nonprofit leadership. Um, mm-hmm. That's either something you learn on the job and are given the opportunity to learn, um, you know, or maybe you come in with a business degree or an MBA or something like that and have a little bit right. more of that background. Um you know, and I think nonprofit preservation work and advocacy groups, they're, we're not really the bulk of the workforce when it comes to preservation world. That tends to be the regulatory side and the, the CR, the cultural resource management side. You know, right. that's where lots of the jobs are, um, in, you know, in the consulting firms and the shippos and things like that. So it's understandable that the preservation, I guess, schools kind of focus on that type of work. Um, but that, and I think, you know, human resources, managing people, um, that's yeah. just something I guess you have to kind of learn on the job. It's, um, you know, that's one of the, what's, it's one of the more rewarding things and it can be more, one of the more challenging things too. I think that's probably the case in academia in a lot of ways as well. I mean, I could be wrong, right? I've never been in charge. I'm an associate professor. I've never been a department chair or a dean, but my sense is that training in, human capital and management is something that people in most positions of academic leadership probably learn on the job as well, unless they happen to have gone to business school or sort of come up through business in a way. It's, it's funny what we tell ourselves about our job, right. And what we do all day and what we actually do and what we can maybe stand and have some training in. Um, I do think there's a sense rightfully or not that people who work in academia are sort of not the real world, right? Like academia is like not the real world. I hear people who are professors, right. Who say that they wanted to be an academic because they didn't want to have a job quote in the real world, which is always just astonishing to me because I think there's so many people who would say like, no, my job is pretty real world. Like here I am, I, a human being in a job. Right. And I think that there is some reluctance in academia to really think about it as a profession in the same way that other professions do. Again, I'm making big generalizations here, but I'm, I would be interested in having had more training in a lot of the management that you mentioned. Right. Although I guess the question is, is management, what what about management would be related to teaching? Because I think that there is some. Yeah, there's certainly you know, some the management overlap. baked into teaching. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I think it's. Um, I think the other thing too is that for a lot of people who get into this, it's you know they they into the nonprofit side, they came at it kind of being practitioners of preservation, maybe doing survey work or something like that. Mm-hmm. I was different in that early on, I kind of made the switch over to advocacy uh, at a national organization that I was working at. And so was much more involved in policy and crafting and, and strategy than I was kind of. And so I've been away from that for a very long time. And mm-hmm. so it's not, I'm not, I don't feel a real strong pull to go out and start, um, <laughs> you know, surveying, um, you know, buildings or things like that. I do think some of my peers miss that. And I think that that can kind of sometimes be the challenge is that they don't want to be doing the meeting stuff and the business planning and things like that. And, and I enjoy that because I see that the, the fruits of that. So, but I do think that that's sort of the rub sometimes is that the, the more you grow into a position, the further and further away from sort of the hands-on preservation 
you you come and and every once in a while I do think it's important for me to go out and actually like look at a building you right. know <laughs> I'll spend a lot of my time in front of a computer um and not interacting with buildings um and sometimes it only happens when I'm on vacation or something like that but it's like oh this is why I like this I forgot about that you know we are right. ac actually having an impact so all right so I've talked about me and what my days are and and zoom fatigue but um, you, you, you do not actually sit in an ivory tower. There is no, I do not there's sit a, in an ivory tower. There's not even I, an ivory I tower on, on your campus. Floor. I am on the fourth floor of my, uh, uh, office building. So it's a little so bit of a tower, kinda, I guess. You can kind of look down on people, but, I look down, yeah, no. <laughs> um, but, um, but what, what is it like? So you get to work when, how long do you stay? Is it, you know, what, what is that all like? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say I don't have necessarily a daily routine, but my routines are more based on the the week and sort of where we are in the academic term. So um, right now, you know, I teach a couple of days a week. So on days that I teach, I am on campus the full day. Our graduate classes in there are in the evening. So I usually get up in the morning go to school, do a lot of teaching prep, right? Re review my lecture notes or um, maybe if the, uh, new research has come out and I'm sort of looking over my notes, I might spend a couple hours reading new research that has come out since the last time I've talked about a topic, right? Um, and then I go and teach. I At Villanova, I'm lucky to teach pretty small classes. So I get to know my students and... Um, you know, have fairly discussion-based courses, whether they're at the undergrad level or graduate level. And how and long are the say, classes? Um, undergrad classes are 75 minutes and the grad classes are two hours. And in academia, they often say that our, our work should be divided into about 40% teaching, 40% research, and 20% service. And service means things like peer reviewing, manuscripts, um, going to meetings, serving on committees on campus. But most of my time during the semester is really on based in teaching and service. So, you know, I would, I would say I spend 50% of my time on teaching, whether that's preparing to teach, meeting with students, grading papers, answering student emails, planning for the next semester, right? This is not even the midpoint in October, and we already need to have our descriptions for our spring courses in place, right? Ordering book, book, uh, bookstore uh, stock, that sort of thing. So I spend a lot of time on teaching. Um, meetings, believe it or not, there are a lot of meetings in academia, whether it's committee meetings, um, I'm book review co-editor for a journal. So editorial meetings, you know, the emails, the requests, um, for more information. And what happens in a committee meeting? You hear about <laughs> this all the time. Um, what happens or what doesn't happen? <laughs> yeah, what happens or what doesn't? Well, a lot of it depends on if there's even an agenda, right? Like it's it's fascinating how many meetings I think like, what am I meant to be preparing? What is really the goal here? Um, so, you know, and I would say that people have varying levels. I wonder if this is the same for you in your field. People have varying levels of experience with even running a meeting or like knowing what an agenda is. 
Um, and, and, you know, what happens in a meeting? I mean, any number of things it might be decisions about curriculum, right? It might be reviews of editorial practices for a journal. It could be, you know, gosh, uh, questions about student life, right? It could mm. be feedback to, I'm on a committee that gives feedback to students who are pre-health, meaning like pre-med, pre-nursing, pre-vet. Um, so a lot of that service work of, of on campus is, yeah, it can be curricular. It can be dealing with student life. It can do with research policies, right? So it might be reviewing research policies about things like how you give gift cards to people who participate in um, psych studies, right? If you like go and take a survey, I don't know mm. if you did this in college. When I was in college, I would go to, you know, the psychology departments often running, um, you know, surveys or sort of experiments, right? And you might get a gift card or you might get um, cash or something like that, right? So I think this is kind of the hidden work that people um, might think, oh, professors are just sitting there reading books all day. It's like, no, we're actually like reading research policies and things like that. Um, might be having to do with hiring, right? Hiring new new um, colleagues. So anyway, there are a lot of meetings and uh, research is something that is always a struggle to preserve that time, right? To really set aside that time. And honestly, does that happen thing, more in the summer than as a result? It happens more in the summer, right? So one of the worst things you can say to a, um, uh, an academic, I think, is saying like, oh, you get summers off because it feels like the summer is time, you know, some people teach courses, right? In this um, age of, you know, disappearing tenure lines, a lot of people are teaching classes year round, right? They're adjuncting, they're visiting professors. Um, it's, it's not necessarily even just research time. For me, I'm very lucky. Most summers I have time to do more focused work on research. But during the school year, it really is, it has to be for me at least targeted um, a lot of that time for research is actually spent preparing for conferences or giving book talks, things like that. So it's really a pretty wide variety of things I do. Um, there are some weekly routines, but it really just depends on the time of the year. You know, some weeks, almost 100% of my time that I'm working is grading, right? In my in my quote unquote free time. So it just depends what's what's on my desk. But, you know, I've really, I've recently become really interested in a lot of the issues that we're both identifying things like how do people learn to run meetings? What do people know about finances and budgets? I'm actually taking a graduate course in nonprofit financial management this term because I'm interested. I'm, it, it has to do with my academic interests, but it is also just, I think, practical knowledge that would help me be a better public historian and, and work with community groups more successfully to really understand how, what, what are the best principles, right? What are the ways to manage nonprofit finances? Yeah. You'd be a good asset for a nonprofit board. Are you on any boards? Yeah, I am not currently on any boards. I was on a neighborhood, what we call an RCO in Philadelphia, a registered community organization. I was for four years, but, um, stepped away after two terms to, you know, take a break, get, let some, 
new folks on the board. Well, if anybody's listening in Philly and uh, is interested <laughs> in a great board member, she's she's taking classes on oh, nonprofit gosh. finance. I mean, I, 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 that would be a pretty amazing uh, get for for any, uh, yeah, any nonprofit. I, I guess so. Now, do you you must work with a board? Yeah. So we have a board of about 25 individuals and that's, you know, that's who I report to is, is our mm-hmm. board. And, um, yeah. And, and board management is, you know, sort of like managing up. It's a, uh, you know, you're not, you're not in charge of them, but you're trying to get them to do things or help you or think about things. Um, you know, and I think one of the big challenges with nonprofit work these days are boards. I'm sure people are, who are listening who deal with the board are, are nodding their heads is that it's sort of like the way I describe it is, you know, how like um, the Elks and the fraternal orders used to be very popular and people had time for them. And those sort of things are dying off because it's just people are just pulled in a lot of different directions. And I think board service, it still is important. And I don't want to speak poorly of my board or any other, but they're people are pulled in so many different directions. It's very difficult, um, to kind of put that same level of, um, effort and involvement and time into board service. Like I think it may have been 30 or 40 years ago. And so it, I, I sometimes wonder, and I don't have the answer for this, is what does the nature of board service look like over the next 10 to 15 years? I think, you know, organizations, ha- there was there was a period in which nonprofits sort of rank, wrung their hands and talked about, oh my gosh, the membership model and direct donor mail, that's all changing. And I think people have come to terms with, yes, it is. I haven't heard the same level of conversations around boards, but I do think that they're changing. And, you know, large statewide organizations like ours, um, you know, we'll always have board members who are interested and excited about the work and, and willing to be involved in that because it has a higher profile. Um, but I, I worry too sometimes about like the smaller organizations that don't have that profile. And it is very, it can be sort of, it can be hard work and it doesn't, you know, it's, um, you know, it doesn't always, it's not always glamorous and it doesn't always cut a big high profile. And so how do you get people to continue to, to run those? And and that ties right into the, you know, the future of historic house museums, because they tend to be run by people like that who are giving of themselves, but it's sort of a thankless position sometimes. So I, I think the next big conversation within the nonprofit world is going to be about the nature of boards and how boards function moving forward. Um, particularly if you want there to be inclusivity on your board and diversity, but then you also look to your board as being a fundraising source and not everyone who, you know, not every representative of every community is going to be a position to do that. Not to say that diverse voices can't give money. They can, but you know, diversity is a lot, it looks a lot of different ways. I mean, if you want to have young people on the board, generally speaking, they don't have a lot to give financially, but they can give other ways. But if you look at the board purely as a fundraising entity, then that limits your ability. So I think that all of those questions, whether they be about inclusivity, whether they be just about the time that people have to give of themselves, I think that that's a big conversation that's just not being had. And, and it's frustrating, um, you know, because you, 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 I know that we're not alone in this, but it, but it is challenging and it, you know, and, and you want to, um, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a big issue and, and we're fortunate that we have a really engaged board. Um, and again, I'm even just thinking about like the smaller groups and how that dovetails with some of these preservation organizations that are already on the edge. Yeah. I share that with you because I, I mean, I see so much 
burnout as well, right? I mean, there's this issue of like, okay, we have boards who is on the board and why are they, right? So we can look at university boards that are filled almost exclusively with people in corporate finance, right? There are not professors on on boards, right? There are not students on boards. There are not alums who choose to go into nonprofit work on boards, right? It's almost- We're never invited. No, it's almost (laughs) exclusively corporate finance. So, you know, okay, that's important, I think. I think that that's one important aspect, but then like whose voices are really being, as you say, represented, heard, what kind of values are are being used or sort of baked into who's on a board, right? And then we can look at those smaller organizations that you're pointing to. And you're right, people are being pulled in so many directions, right? I see burnout and ineffectiveness so much in small organizations, community organizations, because it's the same people, right? On every board, there aren't as many people who are able or willing to show up, you know, every other Monday night at 7 p.m. because of jobs and because of, I mean, talk about COVID, right? And burnout. I think there's going to be a real after COVID effect that lingers after the pandemic wanes because people are just they're maxed out, right? And they're maxed what happens out. when nobody nobody joins boards anymore, right? Yeah, and we're seeing it even in the labor sector too. I mean, you know, we have a really high performing staff. And so kind of going back to that conversation around budget and compensation, like I see that as one of my primary jobs is like, how do we keep great talent on board and how do I raise enough money to make sure that we can do that? And, and from a donor's perspective, it shouldn't be like, oh, we're paying big salaries. We're not, we wish we could, but, but it really is. Do you want a high performing organization that has just fantastic top caliber staff that gets done what you care about? And that's, you know, I think we, we can make that argument compellingly, but you know, the labor sector is, is obviously, um, you know, in terms of, of hiring. It's, it's hard to find people. It's hard to compete right now. And, um, you know, I think that you can look at some sectors and say, we'll just pay more. And that can be challenging for a nonprofit. Um, and it's also, I, you know, talking about burnout and stuff like that. I think people are just itching to do something different mm-hmm. and whether or not a new job really will satisfy that itch, who knows, but it's, you know, we're seeing these tremendous numbers about people just leaving jobs and going other places. Um, and I think the nonprofit sector in general is just going to see that even if they're just picking up and going to another nonprofit, it's just like a change of scenery, you know, it's, right. a, it's a different set of zoom meetings. Um, and, uh, you know, so, that's going to be something that I think the preservation community has to contend with. We have to make sure that our, I mean, we're, we're pretty competitive, um, on wages just because of where we're located, you know, in the mid Atlantic and and in between Baltimore and Washington, DC. And, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunities and a lot of options for people. So we have to be competitive that way. And I think some of our peers are trying to catch up with that. Um, that's going to be an issue. I think that people graduating are expecting something a little bit different. Um, So it's, um, yeah. And, and all of those big picture issues are things that I, you know, try and be aware of and pay attention to and understand how, how are those trends going to impact our sector? Um, you know, and, and, and you do see it, you know, it, it does, it does eventually trickle down into, okay, you know, the tightening of the labor market when we go and advertise for a position, 
you know, who can we afford? Who are we going to get? Um, you know, the good or the bad news is that there's not always a ton of preservation jobs in this kind of world. And so we tend to get a huge, um, group of applicants every time we post. And I think that we're fortunate also in that, you know, we've raised our profile enough that people want to be a part of the team, which is cool. Um, and, but you know, it's, uh, it's a pervasive challenge to make sure you get the right people on the team because that that really in the end makes or breaks a nonprofit is do you have the mm -hmm. right team? It's not really the work, it's the people doing it. And and that is, you know, the, you have to be sort of, it sounds so like cliche and, and cheesy, but like you have to be people first in the way you approach your organization and, and treat people with compassion and compensate them correctly. Um, and the rest kind of falls in place because then the work will be, will speak for itself and you'll be able to raise more funds. I mean, that's sort of my, I guess my, my theory of, of, of nonprofit management. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's really important that what, to whatever extent we can, right. That we're pushing for higher wages, higher salaries, in my case, more tenure track lines, right. Because I think that part of what you're talking about with retention, um, getting on getting people on board who want to work for an organization or for a university or, you know, company is about enabling people who want to be there to make it livable, right? That you say like, yes, I want to be at your organization and I'm able to support my family or my lifestyle or what have you. So I think that's a huge challenge, right? To, to, to try to see that as, ultimately a, a big part of our job. I guess it probably falls much more under your purview than mine, but I think about it a lot because I have no power in a lot of ways to set yeah. salaries, right? Or to to create tenure track lines. On the other hand, it's like in some way it's my responsibility as somebody with tenure to to try to push in some ways for that. So it's it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's something I think about all the time. And, yeah, and, and, and we're fortunate that we have such a great staff and I know everybody says that, but we really do. And, um, making sure that we, we can keep them and keep that, that talent there. And that burnout piece, I mean, there was a whole big article that kind of went around in the preservation world. Um, I think it was written by, is it Raina Reagan, um, mm -hmm. over at the national trust about sort of the burnout crisis. And I, and I sort of, I felt bad almost in a way reading it. Cause I was like, Oh, I don't really feel burned out. Like I know the pandemic has, there's been moments where I'm like, Oh my God, make this end obviously. Um, but in terms of like the work that we're doing, I still feel really, um, you know, empowered, but I'm in a leadership position. And so that's going to be a little bit different for me. Um, and I want to make sure that my staff, you know, is getting the resources that they need. And, you know, we tend to be a really, you know, I, I had experiences early on working where it wasn't, always, there wasn't always a tremendous um, emphasis put on flexibility. And so I was always like, I promised myself that I would be that. And so I think by giving that flexibility, we haven't made the full jump to like, there is no such thing as vacation time. Just take whatever you need and get the job right. done. But, um, that's, that's a, that's, a, that's, the, I guess that's the next step. But, um, we're very focused on like, you know what, your family comes first and the work will follow. And I think when people feel appreciated in that way, they're almost, they almost feel like compelled to kind of, you know, perform and, and want to get the job done because they feel like they're being sort of embraced by leadership. And, you know, I think that that all, that's all an important piece. I mean, it's that, that morale, you know, I think it was at Patton or something said that like, you know, nothing can, can destroy morale, like bad morale at the top. Um, so <laughs> you kind of have to like, kinda, that's a bad paraphrase. I'm sure there's some Patton scholar out there who just screamed at the, at their iPhone. But, um, so, um, 
Well, we need to take a quick pause and come back, talk about what we're reading, what we're doing, and uh, we'll wrap up this episode of PreserveCast. Hey, it's Nick here, and I want to remind you briefly that your support is what makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like this one, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow along on social media at PreserveCast. You can also continue supporting the podcast with a donation at PreserveCast.org. PreserveCast is sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more about our past. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. I'm joined today with my co-host, Dr. Whitney Martinko. Um, You're listening to the professor and the practitioner. We've been talking about what it is to be us and what we do and um, uh, what people misconceive about our work. And this has kind of been eye opening. I feel like I even learned a little something about Whitney and what her, what her days look like. Um, so we always try and wrap these conversations with, um, little conversation around what we're reading. What, and I, I, um, told you in advance about, or perhaps what we're doing. Um, so what, what are, what are you reading or what are you doing right now, Whitney? Yeah. Well, I foregrounded this a little bit, I guess, by saying that I'm taking a nonprofit financial management class. So I'm reading all sorts of interesting scholarship and sort of just instructional materials about financial management um, with cities as well as nonprofits, which has been really fascinating. But I recently picked up a new book that came out, I guess, maybe a couple months ago now. It's called Bringing Up the Boss, Practical Mm -hmm. Lessons for New Managers. It's by Rachel Pachicho, um, and she's a professor at Wharton, just down the street from me at the University of Pennsylvania. So I am not a new manager. Uh, I manage no one as far as I know, at least. Um, but I've become really interested in, in institutions and organization and sort of organizational leadership and management. And I heard about this new book, it might've been on public radio, or maybe I read about it, but it's, uh, it's really interesting. It's heavily illustrated and the scholar is coming out of the tech world and sort of the step, the startup world where organizations maybe start small, right. With a, a lot of young folks who are getting a lot of their labor and are just kind of you know, piecemeal putting this company together. But then if this company succeeds, then those usually young people, but people at the beginning of their careers, at least in a startup, then become managers, right? And they've had no real training and they've had no real experience um, that has modeled good management. So this book seems to be drawing from management studies and sort of giving people a practical look. If you're a new manager, how do you develop that knowledge that may not have been modeled for you in the, in, in one's work life? Interesting. So, maybe, we, yeah. maybe we should have them on to, to, to <laughs> yeah, do Yeah. Little... I don't, and I, I don't, I've, I've never met the scholar. I haven't finished the book yet, but it's been, it's been great. I always, I like books that are based on research, right. But aren't only, I read so many like journal articles, right. Monographs sort of really, in deep in expertise uh, research, that it's nice to read something that is aimed at a broader audience. But I know that you are not, I'm sure you're still reading some, but you've got a new hobby. I, I do. So yeah, so I have been, um, of course, always still reading something. In fact, I picked up a, uh, 
a cool book, an old, old book um, called At Home with Ernie Pyle. Um, and Ernie Pyle was sort of America's, like the voice of journalism during World War II. And this is his pre-World War II um, look at, he basically traveled across the country in the 1930s and writes these hilarious little stories about the people that he meets along the way. And it's this really kind of charming kind of folksy homespun um, look at America in the 1930s from the perspective of one goofy journalist. Um, so just a weird off the wall thing that I found at an antique store. I think we were in Ipswich or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I, I took up sketching. Um, so a previous guest of PreserveCast, Dana Saylor, who's been on twice, is a fantastic artist and she always makes the case for like, just, just to start, if you want to sketch, just start sketching. You won't be good at first and you just get better. And then of course I, um, as preserve cast listeners know, I love Eric Sloan, who is this, uh, cantankerous, um, chronicler of, uh, early Americana and he sketched everything. So I sort of, sort of started trying to sketch in the style of Eric Sloan and kind of copying some of his and turning, turning my own style and then kind of started doing watercolor, you know, fill in of these sketches and stuff like that. So I've started doing my own little, uh, architectural sketches as a way to decompress and, and also, you know, enjoy that aforementioned, um, disconnection sometimes with historic places. So this is an opportunity for me to sit there and think about them and contemplate them and draw them and sort of recommune with the things that got me involved. So uh, maybe a good way to wrap up this conversation because it's, you know, it's, uh, it's easy as a manager or leader to kind of get disconnected from that, that, that brought you to the dance. And, um, this is my way of kind of recommuning with his historic places and, and seeing them. So in a different way, in a, in a slower way than perhaps, um, zoom can afford. Yeah, that's great. And maybe I can reconnect in with the archives, right? In fact, your sketches got me thinking about Edwin Whitfield. I don't know if you've heard of him. No. He did a lot of watercolor sketches of historic buildings. He was working in the third quarter of the 19th century, I think. And a lot of those sketches are at historic new England, um, up in, up in Boston. Um, cool. so that's a good reminder for me, right. That I'm, I'm not much of a sketch artist, but I also am looking forward to reconnecting with, with place and with history in part in the real world and in the round. Right. But also in the, yeah. yeah. So get out there and draw things. Draw, There's get into the archives, research things, right? Don't don't get disconnected from the thing that brought you to preservation, right? That's the. I lesson. think that's a that's a fantastic way to wrap this whole thing because I think both of us can get uh, meeting to death and then uh, forget why it is we got involved in all of this, and that's a good reminder for everybody listening. So this has been fun as always. We'll be back um, next month and uh, preparing for the holidays when we talk that uh, next time on uh, PreserveCast. Good talking with you, Whitney. See you later. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.